This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and I'm joined by Dan from Shares. Hello. So today we'll talk about the rampant rise in some biotech stocks, why young investors have been spooked by recent market falls, what we've all spent more money on in the lockdown, and we speak to fund manager Mark Slater about where the good opportunities are in the UK at the moment. But before we get to all of that, um, first let's see what's happening in markets this week. So Dan, what's been happening? Biotech madness is a, a good way to describe what's been happening on the markets. So anyone who's been invested in biotech stocks this year uh, should have had a pretty good time. Loads of people sort of just putting their money into space, hoping that they're going to back a company that's either going to develop a vaccine for coronavirus or, or is sort of helping with the research and the sort of testing along the way. So there's this tiny little stock called Synergen, whose share price increased more than 400% in a single day. Uh, in a single out. day? I know. I mean, this is this is kind of why people put money into this space, because when when a biotech company comes out with good news, they, they can, on occasion, have very strong reaction. Of course, the flip side is the same, that if they come out with bad, disappointing news, these shares can absolutely tank. So Synergen had um, the results of a very early stage drug trial that found hospital patients who were taking its drug had a 70% lower odds of developing severe disease requiring ventilation or, um, or even leading to death during the treatment period of up to 16 days than patients who received a placebo during this trial. So, so really, it, it's, you know, the investors looked at this and said, OK, Synergen has clearly developed something that could potentially be very useful um, in the current pandemic. But actually, the day after, it's the, the company issued another announcement to the stock market, sort of emphasising, hang on a minute, it's, it's, it is only a trial. We still have more trials to go. And then we need to get um, a successful drug approved. So uh, I think that a lot of people sort of just assumed that this this one event simply meant that here's the cure for coronavirus. And unfortunately, very much not the case as we stand at the moment. You, you do need masses more information and, and testing before um you know and the regulators will approve any drug really so are, are these biotech stocks are the share prices more volatile at the moment than even they would usually be even though they're normally quite volatile because of covid19 and, and potential treatments around there yeah i mean there's a lot of money's flocked to the space so uh literally they're moving they're definitely moving every time one of these stocks puts announcement out even if it's an update saying we're doing what we said we're going to do a week ago we're doing it that's enough to move a share price but and you know last year these stocks wouldn't potentially wouldn't trade at all in a single day they'd you know they'd just be drifting along or drifting downwards in many of the cases but um this year loads of loads of people just so excited about the space but um you know it's, it's a binary outcome drugs will work or they don't you know if a company needs to do more testing they're going to need more cash um to keep going and and you know this is a, this is probably one of the highest risk areas of the market um so you know if, if you're 
if you personally one of the listeners and you've got money in this space just please do understand the risks that come with with sort of biotech stuff and it feels like at the moment everyone's slightly become a bit of a coronavirus expert so i guess lots of people think that they fully understand the drug trials or what specific area that some of these biotech biotech stocks are actually looking at but it might be the case that it is much more complicated than they realize oh yeah definitely i mean you've even got one of the you know the one of the biggest london listed companies is astrazeneca and um it's involved amongst many many other sort of projects is is trying to work on a coronavirus treatment and it came out with this latest trial update which is also encouraging and that pushed up the share price but you know i think here's a good example of um even if it does make a successful sort of proper discovery of a drug that works i don't think it's really going to make masses and masses of money on it um it's already sort of implied it would be supplying some stuff at cost uh, you know anyone who who develops a vaccine and and there's there's no doubt will be lots of different ones treated for different types of people um i think that they'll they'll get a massive reputation boost but i don't think this is going to result in massive huge boosts to earnings and certainly the stock market is already pricing in success now uh, before it's even happened and there's this u.s strategist called david rosenberg who's been looking at uh, virus related drug and um, sort of trial news and, and he reckons that most of the gains in the US stock market since March all be attributed to the days following news from drug companies about drug trials which you know that's that says it all doesn't it so it shows mm. everyone's talking about tech driving the market but actually it's also a lot to do with investor hope that we're going to get a solution to this problem and therefore anything in the healthcare pharmaceutical biotech space um you know can move the market at the moment i don't know how long this will last but uh, it's certainly a sense of play at the moment and i guess the other thing around your point to these companies not necessarily making massive profits off this they're also presumably spending a lot of money at the moment more so than usual because they've got to spend loads on research and development but they're also trying to do it at record speeds so they must be employing way more people to try and get to these vaccines or outcomes or treatments because i'm sure that you know these companies normally talk about taking years and years to develop stuff and and actually that's probably a good thing for investors to consider that um you know just because there's loads of trials going on now this this could easily be dragging into next year or even the year after if if, you know if things aren't successful in amongst these sort of trials so um it does take a very long time to do it so what else have we seen in markets this week So Netflix had an update, um, said it's got a record growth in subscriber numbers. Unfortunately, the shares um, tumbled because it actually missed earnings expectations. So I think that it's it's not a surprise that Netflix has this big boost in subscriber numbers. So if if we're in lockdown, um, we're bored, want to watch some telly. okay, maybe the people who haven't subscribed to it, giving sort of streaming TV and films a go. So, yeah, it's understandable. But, you know, the, the question now is what, how, how do these growth rates continue for the rest of the year? Has it essentially picked the, the low-hanging fruit and it's going to be quite hard to keep growing at the rate it has done at the moment? So, uh, Laura, what, how many of these streaming platforms do you subscribe to? Like the Amazon, the Disney, the Netflix and, and Sky and more? Um, I think I've actually managed to acquire quite a few now, inadvertently. So I, I definitely Netflix and Amazon Prime 
But I don't watch too much on that. That's more for my rapid deliveries of essentials that I must have within 12 hours. Um, and then I got a free trial to Disney Plus and watched one thing on it and haven't watched it since. So yeah, so probably not going to carry on with that. Yeah, it sounds to me. My kids are sort of devouring Disney stuff at the moment, but I, I sort of said to them that when lockdown ends, that's got to stop. That's going. Well, that's to be so fair, mean. <laughs> to be fair, it, it is. It's not. You know, in the bigger scheme of things, it's only I don't know five, six pounds or something. So, um, it's not like a Sky subscription, which is you know can hurt your wallet a lot more. But um, I, I just think that you know Netflix is is uh, is actually been spending loads of money on new content and. There's also stories about it's trialing some cut price offers in Asia to to try to accelerate subscription growth. So I think, yeah, I do think it's going to find it hard to um, keep soaring at the rate it is at the moment in terms of these new numbers. And and, and this this churn issue has got to be one that, that could be everyone could be talking about later this year. So if we start to come out of lockdown conditions, I think people are just going to get bored of don't want to sit around the house anymore. They're not going to be wanting some of these subscriptions and Netflix seems an easy one to cancel because you're not locked in at all, really, are you? It's only a month at a time. So. And one of the big things with Netflix is its ability to increase prices, which has not been great at in the past. So it's grown, obviously, over the years, its subscriber numbers, but the prices haven't dramatically moved up over that time, have they? It's still pretty cheap each month and their ability to edge up the pricing but not see a drop-off in subscriber numbers is quite tricky but you kind of feel like now they must have some of their most engaged subscribers um than they ever have because you're probably not going to cancel netflix in the middle of of a lockdown pandemic where you're watching loads of tv so maybe now is a better time for them to raise prices but do you think that, that would not go down very well well i, I i've long thought that they could that they've got pricing power they can definitely push up prices and i'm surprised they don't do so on a, you know, they could be doing it every nine, 12 months, really pushing it up, uh, just small little bits at a time. It's, I think they're just, they're, they're probably just too nervous. They're still going on this land grab phase. They may, they may argue that they wait till uh, the business is a bit more mature, then we'll think about, um, see what we can increase returns through extra prices. So, um, We'll see. I mean, there's another on a similar note, Kingfisher's shares um, have shot up uh, as well. I mean, this is DIY spending. So they own a variety of different DIY stores in this country and in France and, and other parts of Europe. It's the same so thing. So their big Again, brands you... here are uh, B&Q and Screwfix, aren't they? Yeah, the that's that it. So, you know, if you're at home during lockdown, you'd be looking at your four walls. You're thinking, oh, God, I, I need to fix that cupboard. I've got to repair the fence. Um, you know, perhaps I need to sort of do the painting up the walls, up the stairs and stuff. So I think people are sort of looking thinking, OK, I, I, I'll do these jobs now because if I'm not going on a holiday. Uh, I want to where I am spending all my time to look nicer. So I'm not surprised to see earnings have been you know, really picking up at this business. But uh, Kingfisher is a, is a very troubled business um, and it will definitely benefit at the moment. But longer term, it's got lots of um big problems still to fix as, as a company um, but I, you know D DIY must have accounted for a big part of people spending during lockdown and actually there's some new data from Kantar that shows Brits have spent an extra 24 million pounds on tea and coffee and 19 million pounds on biscuits in the past three months of course that's not per person that's that's, that's collectively <laughs> but that's just your house 
<laughs> yeah. Oh God. I, when it when lockdown started, I'm, yeah, I, I've been trying to stay off things like biscuits for a long time, and um, they are my one weakness. That when I if I open a packet, I just want to eat the whole lot rather than just one at go. But um, I fell into that trap again. So I, yeah, I, I can definitely fit into the uh, the extra biscuit spending. What have you been buying in lockdown? Then oh, definitely way more biscuits, more biscuits and more chocolate for snacking at home. Uh, way more food generally, I think, because I'm not eating out or buying my lunch in Pret every day. Um, and probably like the rest of the nation, DIY stuff and gardening stuff. Yeah, but we we've been having the odd takeaway. We're not nowhere near as many as I used to have and I, I'm sort of feeling guilty as well I think it's because I'm spending way more time cooking stuff from scratch and sort of you you, you get to you know be aware of the the cost of those raw ingredients when you're doing it yourself and you realize god you are, you are paying so much more for a takeaway um, and whilst it's convenient I don't know I sort of, that's the one area where I haven't really been splashing I know lots of other people have been sort of devouring uh, you know, burgers and Chinese takeaways like nobody's business. So. I just get bored of cooking. I think that's why, I think we, we've now gone, we never used to have takeaways at all. And I think we now probably have about maybe one a week because you just, like, I just can't be bothered with cooking every single meal every single day. <laughs> well, the, the other big story in the markets this week has been the silver price, which is now up 70% since March and it's trading at a six-year high of 21 dollars 17 an ounce so silver is quite an interesting one people always used to think it's it's, it's meant to sort of should theoretically tr- track the gold price uh but it does it tends to lag in terms of movements but it's at the moment people are sort of saying or oh, they're playing the green recovery so it, uh, gold is used um for jewelry and it doesn't really have much other use it, it's it tends to be investment it takes up you know, the a very large proportion of its demand but but silver has actually got industrial applications like electronics and photovoltaic cells that are used in solar panels so uh, i think that you know people are thinking that the this sort of push on um a sort of clean energy world um as well as wanting to put some money into assets that potentially have a store of value so precious metals sometimes are viewed in that way suddenly given this burst of life with silver so uh, on the stock market we've had fresnillo which is um the big silver miner from mexico its shares are up um, more than 80 percent this year that's a that's a bit of a turnaround because last year it was really troubled by low production and higher costs so um yeah i mean it's, it's silver does have a tendency to just suddenly become very fashionable and then and then everyone gets bored of it after again but it's very much it's it's during its, its moment in the sun at the moment do we see as many people buying it as gold i feel like uh, retail investors so DIY investors much more focused on gold and the gold price and buying that rather than silver I feel like it's not seen as as mainstream is it no not at all no I mean it, it, I guess if you go to if you, if you were buying a ring you'd think oh you know silver is the, the sort of the, the, the poor cousin to the gold isn't it you know it, it looks okay but um, it's, it's cheaper and therefore is it meant to be sort of seen as as good value but um but no i mean people don't really sort of flock to flock to silver as in the way that they go for gold and they're thinking that will will, a good way of protecting their money and potentially a hedge against inflation and some of its other sort of um its purposes but yeah so it's it's uh interesting interesting space if you follow the commodities um 
I haven't actually looked at silver for myself for a long time for writing articles, but, uh, but yeah, very much over the headlines at the moment. And so markets obviously have been on a bit of a crazy ride this year, but Laura, I see you, you, you know, we were talking before this podcast that um, you've been looking how it affects young investors much more than older ones. So what have you found? Yeah, it's really interesting. So we did some research looking at how investors have reacted to those market falls. So whether they've seen them as an opportunity to buy more or whether it's maybe scared them slightly or made them take a bit more risk off the table because markets did fall by so much. Um, and there's a real age divide that, that seems to have emerged. So if we look at younger people, which I'm classing as 18 to 34, which has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that I'm 34 and definitely want to be classed in the young age bracket. Um, and then we compare it to older investors. Uh, what we see is that young investors are much more likely to have changed their investing plans as a result of the market crash this year. So some of the things that they're doing, um, around half of them are investing less money. Um, more than a third of them have decided that they want to hold a bit more cash. Uh, so rather than putting that money into markets, they're taking it out and they're holding it a bit more in cash on the side. Um, and there's probably a few reasons for it. Um, one will definitely be that some of these investors, particularly at the younger end of that age range, um, this will be the first market crash they've seen. And it'll be the first time where they've seen markets fall as dramatically as they did earlier this year. Um, so it's likely that some of those will have got a bit scared, will have realised that they had too much risk in their portfolio before um, and that maybe they weren't prepared for um, a market fall like that and being able to hold their nerve throughout it. Um, but one of the other factors is something that we've talked about on the podcast before, which is the fact that younger people... Um, generally, and we're talking about kind of averages here, generally younger people have been hit harder financially by um, the coronavirus crisis and lockdown uh, than older people. So they're more likely to be in jobs that have been affected by the lockdown, so kind of retail and hospitality and things like that, um, more likely to have been furloughed, more likely to have lost their jobs. So they're more likely to have seen this hit to their finances, which in turn might have had a big impact on their investment plans because you're not going to carry on investing loads of money if, if your income's completely fallen and you need your savings in order to pay rent. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's another bit of research out this week from BMO, FNC, investment trusts and, and they were sort of saying that um young people are perhaps reviewing their investments far too regularly with more than a quarter of 16 to 22 year olds checking their portfolios every day but um i mean i, I sort of wonder how many people actually between 16 and 22 are invested quite heavily in the markets anyway given that um you know that that's just started I mean, unless they've inherited loads of money or um they got lucky but they were sort of saying one in seven 23 to 39 year olds are looking at their investments every other day, which is perhaps a bit too bit too much, isn't it? I guess it might trigger um, a tendency to sort of fiddle with your investments and your portfolio too much. You, should, you know, if looking at it so often, um, it might just lead to action that you'd be better off just sort of sitting away and just checking it now and again. Yeah, I think that's good advice. And I think if it's the first market fall you've experienced, you're much more likely to want to check and see every day or every other day or a few times a week how your investments are doing. And then if you see that there have been dramatic movements, you're more likely to make a change. Whereas what you should probably be doing is checking it 
I don't know, it depends on each person, but, but once a week or, or once every couple of weeks, um, if you're in it for the long term and you're not planning on doing any of that kind of day trading and trying to time the market and profit from um, kind of day falls in stock markets. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the chief executive of Asia Bell, Andy Bell, likes to say, you know, take, take a cheeky peek once a week uh, at your share portfolio, perhaps, but, you know, don't don't do it any more frequently than that, really, unless you're perhaps, you know, I guess from my perspective, you, you might want to do that if you are concerned about something or you know, if we're going through a very choppy period, perhaps that's a bit more understandable. And it, but it's interesting that there is this kind of age divide. And I wonder if that's partly because um, people, older people, so I guess like those over the age of 55, will have seen lots of these market falls before. But it also might be that they have a bit more money behind them. And so uh, a drop in their portfolio um, doesn't represent such a dramatic change for them, if that makes sense. Yeah. So continuing our run of getting stellar interviews with fund managers. So this week, we've got Mark Slater on the podcast. So he co-founded Slater Investments, where he runs various UK focused funds. So I talked to him about where he's finding growth in the market. Um, and he gave some thoughts on various stocks, including Future, 10 Entertainment and IWG. Just a note that the interview was done over the phone. So unfortunately, a few times in the interview that the line does get a bit fuzzy. So apologies about sound quality, but it is, it's a great listen. So um, I hope you now enjoy what he's got to say. Mark, you run a growth fund. There's so much uncertainty about the current rates of earnings growth. How do you decide which stocks are actually worth holding at the moment? Because I wondered if there's a risk that the expected growth rates might have been bit overstated I, I think there are only two aspects to that question one is that growth rates generally were trending down even prior to covid and i would say growth rates were trending down really since the last crisis um and then the other aspect of it is what covid has done to growth rates and in some cases it's stopped people making money at all. You know, some companies are making no money, and in some cases it's interrupted growth. So there are those two aspects. Um, we, we look for growth across the board. Um, our screening process remains very similar to what it was in the past, but we, we take the view that even if there's an interruption this year because of COVID, in the same way that in some cases there were interruptions in 2008, our view is a business isn't necessarily a bad business because there's been a mild, a brief interruption. Um, so it, it, you have to adapt to circumstances. Um, you know, some businesses are completely unaffected by some of the recent problems. Um, some have even benefited, and some uh, find themselves very unluckily directly in the gun sites of, of COVID-19. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad businesses. Now, in some cases, they are bad businesses, um, some of the companies that have been most affected. Um, but there are plenty of good businesses that are, will remain good businesses um, after this hiatus. Okay, so yeah, I, I saw that in your growth fund, you've got the biggest weighting to sort of tech and the, and the pharma biotech area. And, they, and clearly, they've, they've done quite well this year. Um, but in, in third place, in terms of weightings, you've got media and entertainment. So I guess some people might wonder if the media sector 
you know, got strong growth prospects or not? I mean, is that just represented by your holding of future, or is that you got other holdings as well? Uh, I mean, large part. I mean, future is our, our largest holding, and and so it would represent the lion's share of of that. Um, and and I have to say, I find you know, sector definitions in in the UK not terribly helpful. They're not our, the companies we own are not particularly homogenous. They're all quite well. In the most cases, they are quite specialized they're doing one or two things very very well they're quite niche um so um yeah in the case of future now future actually has been more resilient than we would have expected um going with through the COVID 19 period um part of their business is selling magazines obviously that's been impacted very badly because a lot of the shops that sell magazines have been closed um there have been some complications online online ad rates dropped um but offsetting that in Future's case, they have a very big increase in the number of viewers, and that's helped on the advertising side. And even more importantly, the e-commerce side of their business has been booming. And that's the bit that we're most interested in. You know, that's the fast-growing, high-margin activity that makes the company most interesting to us. So it's been a bit more resilient than we expected. Um, their, their, their guidance for profits is unchanged, despite all the issues around COVID. So, and in fact, our view is that the numbers are conservative. So um, future is not very representative, in my view, of the more obvious problems in media, you know, like with newspapers and what have you. Okay, what, what, so where else are you sort of finding where you hope to be reliable growth at the moment? Well, I mean, one of our companies, which is also a big holding of ours, um, is Codemasters, the gaming company that focuses on, on driving games. Um, and again, we thought there would be more, more issues for them because it's quite complicated, in fact, for developers who are t used to working together in an office doing it from home. I mean, the tech, the tech side of it isn't that hard, but there are a lot of security issues around it, and they've managed that. Um, but on the, on the plus side, obviously loads of people have had much more time to be playing games. They found engagement is through the roof on all of their key properties. Um, so they've, they've just released their new Formula One game um, in the last week or so, um, and that's currently number one in the UK. And but that's in part because the engagement with Formula One in terms of esports, because the, the 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 Formula One, the physical Formula One season was postponed until recently. So the only dose of Formula One that Formula One fans could get was through esports, and that's had massive levels of engagement, which has grown their market. Um, so, and it's not just with that, they have a number of franchises, that's one of them. Um, so, you know, that company has been a big beneficiary, in fact, of, of COVID-19. Um, and um, they were growing nicely anyway. Our view is even when COVID-19 fades away, the, the growth in the gaming space is going to be very significant for many, many years to come, mainly because of all the changes in terms of distribution um you know streaming and the ease with which people can now access games has completely changed the size of the market you know, i think you could add a, add a zero to the size of the market over the next you know 10 20 years um so you know it's very significant underlying growth in that space um and our view is this particular company 
has a very clear niche. You know, driving is clearly a niche within gaming, but they're very, very good at it. Yeah. So, what can you sort me through your investment process? How do you go about finding sort of these opportunities in the first place? Well, our starting point is is every quoted UK company. Um, so we're looking right across the piece. We include AIM in in that list. Um, you know, AIM is I think just shy of a thousand companies now. Ninety percent of which are uninvestable. You know, some of them are really pretty awful, but there are around 100 companies on AIM that are really very interesting, you know, really good quality businesses. So we include, we do include AIM in our searches, um, and we're screening basically for three things. We, we want companies um, that are growing at an ab above average rates in earnings terms. We, we want to buy that growth cheaply, and our measure of that is the peg, comparing the PE with the growth rate. And the third thing we want at the sort of high end in terms of screening is we want earnings to be real and the best measure of that is comparing the profits with cash flow so we want cash backed earnings um, and just looking at those key criteria and we have to come at it from lots of different ways because it data doesn't sort of behave in a uniform way but you know we just use focusing on those three key areas we're able to eliminate 95% of the market pretty pretty quickly. So we're left with about 5%, about 160-odd companies. And those companies we then get involved with much more in much more detail. So you know, we start off very quantitatively, and we become increasingly qualitative once we get a sort of manageable shortlist. And our thinking basically is, if you find a business that's growing faster than most, that's sensibly priced in relation to that um, growth rate, and it's generating cash, the odds are it's going to do better better than most companies anyway. So you're then partly checking that things are real, and you're also, you know, that everything is as advertised, that there's no obvious problem. And you're also checking that the growth is likely to be sustained. And the qualitative aspect of our work is really focusing on um, what is it that's driving the growth. So it's a very qualitative it's a subjective test it's something that you can't really boil down statistically yeah and so what do you, do you tend to sort of hold on until either something goes wrong or um you know they just they, they've grown as much as they can or do you do you look to sell out when they reach a certain valuation or something like that um yeah well, that's a good question i mean when we buy a company we have a valuation matrix in mind so we have a we have a, a valuation in mind for that business and a way of thinking about valuation for that business. But with any decent growth company, things obviously change. They're organic. They, you know, these are real organisms. Companies are changing every day. So you have to look at things as they are at any point in time. So we have a kind of methodology for valuation and, that, and different businesses that will involve, you know, looking at how peers are valued. It will involve a whole lot of things. Um, but we... We 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 are keeping that under constant review. Now, with a say a, a good company we own, um, as opposed to an exceptional company we own, um, with a good company, when we get to a sensible valuation where we think that most of the good news is in the price, we're happy to move on and we will sell quite quickly at that point and, and move on to something else. If it's an exceptional company and it's crucial 
for a growth investor to make a distinction between the merely good or very good and those rare, truly exceptional companies. With the exceptional ones, we give them more rope to run. Um, and the reason for that is very simple. They tend to surprise on the upside, you, and you don't want to be in a position where you sell too quickly, and then you will find yourself wanting to buy back a year or two later. Because um, that gets very messy. So with the really exceptional ones, we run them harder. We would, if the position size becomes very big, we might well take a little bit of money off the table as we go along, but we're going to be much more reluctant um, to sell those down. Um, and then the, the third aspect of selling for us is when it doesn't work out. If a company doesn't work out, then we move on. You know, and, and doesn't work out includes the growth rate slackening or a problem, a more, more particularly more immediate problem, you know, a profit warning or a, a change in the um, the landscape for that business. Yeah, I noticed that you've got IWG um, in your portfolio. So this is the Regis mm. um, owner you know, service offices. I, I was wondering what, to get your thoughts on whether you think that um, the rise of remote working could actually be devastating to its business model, uh, or whether you actually think that um, people are just assuming that. The way we work will change completely, but actually we'll just go back to our usual patterns in time. Yes, I mean, IWG is one of a small number of companies we own where their world has, has changed very radically. They're, they're very much in the gun sites of COVID, you know, so th their business wasn't shut, but a lot of their offices were to all intents and purposes closed for quite a long period, or, um, you know, um, they... Um, and you know, some of their customers won't be paying them. Um, there's a lot of work they're going to have to do in the short term. The the, the big question as to whether their business has, has, has more permanently been impaired, m my view is that it hasn't. Um, I actually think they'll come out of this better. Um, I think the competitive landscape will radically change in, in, in the serviced office and this sort of, sort of flexible office space. Um, I think the demand for flexible office space will increase quite significantly after the COVID episode. Um, but it remains to be seen exactly how that what that looks like. Um, so you know, I think that you know it's it's a difficult one for us. Um, and uh, our current view is that the the most likely scenario is it will benefit the company. Um, but it's very difficult to know. You know, I mean, you know. Everyone I know in, in, in business is reviewing their office arrangements. Everybody's doing that. But let's face it, most people have a lease. It's a contractual obligation. And if they're solvent, they've got to meet those obligations. Um, if the lease expires in the next few months, they may well take the view that they move on, and, or they, they move to a smaller space, or they move to a flexible space, or whatever, or, they, or everybody works from home. Um, but if it's a longer lease, then... They may, they may well review it, but by the time they come to actually act on it, the world will probably be much more normal. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's a bit like the, you know, the big banks. The big banks over some time have already moved some staff to cheaper locations. They've moved some back office staff to cheaper locations. You know, there's, there's talk that some of the big professional firms might start to have satellite offices and cheaper locations around London and have a much smaller central London presence. Um, and that may happen, um, but my, my, my instinct is that there'll be more talk than action um, in those areas. Um, 
but we'll see. You know, it's a little bit like after 9-11. I, I thought, you know, who in their right mind would want to own a skyscraper, you know, a flat in, a, in a, an apartment in a skyscraper in New York? And within a few years, new skyscrapers, you know, were full of apartments were popping up all over the place. So, um, and people were buying them for crazy numbers. So, um, you know, people are very adaptable. Um, um, habits change. I think the, the, the move to flexible office space was already strongly underway um, prior to COVID. And my instinct is like most themes, um, it'll be accelerated rather than stopped. That's my instinct, but it's difficult. You know, that's it's one of the more challenging um, companies we own for that reason, because we don't really know. Yeah. Have you got anything else in the portfolio where you've had to you know, take a good look and think, oh, you know, is there a risk that because the world potentially changed, the company might lose, say, pricing power or competitive advantage? Or do you think actually that your, your portfolio is pretty resilient even to sort of slight changes in, in the way we, we live and work? Well, yeah, we, 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 we reckon we've got about... Um, about 30% of our portfolio is either unaffected by COVID, maybe benefiting, but, you know, but at least benefiting or unaffected. But then about in round numbers, in the in the low 40%, um, where you've got companies which are um, affected, but it's obviously temporary. So these are businesses which are obviously going to bounce back quickly. Um, and we've then got, we've got a reasonable amount of cash. We've got 15, 16% cash at the moment, which is unusually high for us. That, that actually isn't particularly a market. That's not representing a market view. That's more representing um, some buying and selling activity, both before COVID and, and since. Um, but then we've got about 12%-ish of the portfolio that's in companies like IWG, where they're clearly directly and seriously impacted where at the very least they got an awful lot of work to do in the short term. Um, and so one example is IWG. It, we own one or two companies that are like, like 10 Entertainment's a good example. It's a 10 pin bowling company. Um, and it's closed at the moment. So it's completely shut. Now, that's clearly not good for business. Now, our view is that business will clearly reopen. It's in any event got 12 months cash assuming it's completely shut, which is a pretty conservative assumption from today. Um, and our view is, and this, this is comparable to IWG in this one sense, that when life continues, whenever that might be, their competitive landscape will have radically changed in their favor. Because there are basically two big, well-financed, both publicly owned, yet publicly listed companies in that space, and all the rest are much smaller. Um, and the much smaller ones will be very much worse, worse impacted in our view. So, you know, Tenet's same will come out of this much stronger. Um, and, um, and our view is the main bet for us, given that they're well financed for a long time, is will people go bowling again? And I think that's a pretty easy bet. You know, of course they will. Now, we, we don't want to be in a position of having, of our, our view being entirely dependent on the date. Um, we don't know when that date, when that will be. My guess is it'll take time for people to go back to where they were. But our assumptions are based on a very long. Well, we, we did an analysis where, assuming it takes three years 
for people to get back to their previous sort of habits. And then the, the company grows at a much lower rate than historically. And assuming that it ends in five years' time on a PE of only 10, we will still nearly double our money. Wow. Yeah. Um, so now there are lots of assumptions there, but they're not silly ones. We're not betting that everything's going to go back to normal next week. Um, and so, you know, that that's if we're wrong, we're not wrong. We're going to be wrong by a year, maybe, or we're going to be wrong by 10 percent or something. And obviously, if, the, if we're wrong in terms of the valuation being higher, then, then the percentage annual return is much, much, much better than, than you know, 14, roughly 14% per annum. We, we would assume if the P is 10 in uh, five years' time, if the P were 12, we'd be getting 17.5% per annum. So, you know, those are pretty good numbers for a company that's in the hospital ward at the moment because it's, you know, it's closed. But the fact they're closed is not their fault. It doesn't mean it's a bad business. It doesn't. It doesn't put it in the category of a of a struggling retailer, um, which has a whole lot of other problems. Um, so that's what I said at the beginning, really. You know, the, 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 some companies are very directly impacted, but it does not mean they're bad businesses. I guess it needs uh, an investor to be comfortable looking beyond sort of the the, the near term. Um, uh, and just not assuming that everything's growing to a halt forever, really, isn't it? To, to be able well, to see. I think that's right, and yeah, and that's right. And I and I think the other thing is, you know, I mean, what one normally does as an investor is you look at the short term and the long term outlook, and you form your view. At the moment, the short term outlook is extremely difficult. It makes it more difficult than it's ever been to assess. Certainly for a business like Ten Entertainment that's, that's currently closed. Um, so, but, but once you've come, got comfortable on the idea that they're going to survive, even in a pretty grim scenario, um, then you can afford to look ahead. And, and the questions are actually not very complicated. It, it literally does. The key question is: Will people go back to roughly what they did before one day in relation to this business, i.e., bowling? I think it's a very safe bet that they will. And then all the other questions are actually very simple. Uh, you know, the company's got a very low labor content. Every one of their sites has parking so people can drive there, which could be important, you know, even if, if, if uh, people change their habits um, around public transport, for instance. Um, the, it's the cheapest form of family entertainment by far. Um, so it's also recession resistant to a degree. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an industry where there's lots of self-help that can be done, which is a very high return. So, for instance, shifting the mechanism for picking up the skittles uh, to a thing they call pins on strings, which is much more resilient and uh, requires much less maintenance. Um, but there's lots, you know, getting people to use the gaming machine, the uh, arcade machines more, getting more people to eat there. There's lots and lots of stuff they can do to improve their business. Um and there's the rollout potential, and there's the fact that I think the competitive position will be in their favour in a year or so. So there's lots of good things, but you know you can't quantify the precise impact of those things. But I don't think you need to to, to form a view. You just have to look over the over the valley. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been really, really fascinating. So thanks a lot for your time. My great pleasure. Thanks a lot for listening this week. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, then do tell your friends about it or leave a review for us wherever you listen to it. 
and we will see you next week. See you later. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.